Well, thanks for joining us for part four of our series, Who is the Church? If you've missed any of this, I'd encourage you to go back and watch as we have talked now for the last three weeks about different images and ideas that are representative of the church in the New Testament. How the church is obviously one body, it's one organization, so to speak, um, in the New Testament, but yet it's described in different ways to convey different aspects and characteristics of it. In fact, Maybe you have followed along with us, and then this is review, but in the first week we talked about how the church is identified as foreigners living in a strange world. Why? Because through Jesus we have received a new kingdom, we have a new king, and so although we dwell in this physical world like we always have, we don't belong to the world because he has given us different ideals and ethics and how we function in the world is different, and so we belong in the world, but not of the world. We don't belong to the world. We are foreigners. And then in week two, we realized that, hey, even though we are foreigners in the world, that does not mean that we are separatists. That doesn't mean that we go and we huddle and we isolate in our own little huddles waiting for Jesus to come back. Instead, as we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors to the world. So the picture really goes together on two different sides of the same coin, that we are foreigners. That means we are uh, set apart from the world. We are not influenced by the thinking and the ideas and the philosophies of the world because we've been called to a new kingdom, and yet we are representatives of Jesus to that same world. We are ambassadors. And then last week, we somewhat pivoted not by titles and positions of foreigners and ambassadors, but last week we saw that the church's character in the world is to be salt and light. That is that we have been set in the world, we have been changed by Jesus, and because of that, we are a natural preserving agent in the world that the world around us can see the good that God gave to us through Jesus inside of us so that when people see us, they see Jesus in us, or better yet, they see Jesus through us. Why? Because the church is salt, preserving the good that God created, but also light that is obvious in a dark world. And so this week we round out this series in part four, and, and really we, we somewhat pivot as we look at this last example. The last example that is described of the church is that of God's household. And, and really this is somewhat different because God's household somewhat looks inside the church. Some, some of what we've talked about in the first three weeks is more so how the church relates to the world around us as foreigners and ambassadors, as salt and as light. And yet this week really somewhat turns the focus inward and says, who is the church to each other? And so I want us to think about this. I don't think it's any secret to any of us who are watching that there are a lot of things in our society that divide us. There are things that are maybe less serious, maybe more serious. There are things on a macro level that divide us. There are things on a micro level that divide us. Maybe things within our own communities that can divide or things nationally that can divide us. And I think to some degree, this is inherent to our society. It's, it's somewhat unavoidable because division is all around us. There are so many things that can divide us, and yet, here's the key, for the church, who is the church? The church is the household of God. We're going to see what that means in a second, but what we need to understand is that division inside the church threatens the very nature of it. You see, the threat to the church often comes from within rather than from without. For context, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, 
this morning, starting in verse 11. But before we read that, I want to give us a little picture and a little background of what's going on. You see, Paul writes the letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, if you don't know much about it, it's described by some in the ancient days as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. What that means is that Ephesus was a huge city in Asia Minor at that time. It was one of the prominent cities in all of the world made up of large amounts of people. There was a huge coliseum there, a, a theater there that could seat upwards of 50,000 people, you know, competitive or com- comparable to some of our, our modern day stadiums. You can imagine in those days in a large city with large gatherings, it housed such ability to host a lot of people. Well, of course, when you get that many people together, you get people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. And so in this metropolis, in this major city, you had obviously those who were known as Gentiles, that is those who were non-Jewish people, uh, sometimes described as pagans. And the reason for that is because being such a large city, being such a prominent city, it housed the, ta- uh, the pagan temple of Diana, a massive place of worship where people would come and they would gather and they would worship this goddess, Diana. It was known for that temple and therefore uh, being a Gentile center of worship, a pagan center of worship. But also in Asia, being such, a, or in Ephesus, being such a large city in Asia, you had a large also population of Jews. Jews are the very antithesis of the pagan, that which is foreign to God, that they would worship the goddess of Diana or other Roman and pagan gods. The Jews were the antithesis of that because they worshiped the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the the God Yahweh who gave the Ten Commandments and gave the law to Moses. And so they had a very strict law code that they would abide by. And so naturally you can imagine, and kind of what happens in this major city is this, you have this large city with a large group of people Well, then here comes Paul, and here comes the other apostles, and here comes the gospel of Jesus. And so you have Jesus coming to town, so to speak, through the apostles, people responding, believing in faith that through Jesus their sins would be forgiven, their sin could be atoned for. And so now you have the church in Ephesus, and yet within that church you had those from a pagan background, you had those from a Jewish background. And so what happened is you have opportunity now inside the church for division. And with that in mind, Paul writes this letter and he begins to address some of these topics. You see, for the Gentile, there was nothing built into the framework of their everyday life that would point them to salvation through Jesus. There was nothing that would point them to Jesus naturally. And yet for the Jew, they had been entrusted with the Old Testament scriptures. They had the law. They had the prophets, all of which pointed to the coming of Jesus. So you have two very different people from very different backgrounds. And yet now belonging to the same church, Paul addresses, hey, this is not to be an issue that divides us. And so if you look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, this is what Paul says to that church in that city made up of those people. He says, so then. In fact, what he says is, hey, because of what we've talked about in verses 1 through 10, this is true of you. And really what he does is he reminds those in Ephesus, mainly the Gentiles at this point, he reminds them of their past. And this is what he says, so then. Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were categorized as Gentiles. That's who you were. That's your past. You were called the uncircumcised by those 
called the circumcised. In other words, the Jews referred to you as the uncircumcised. Categorically, you were distinct, you were different. He says, at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. In fact, this is exactly what Paul says. He says, at one time, in your past, that's key, in the past, you were known as Gentiles. And then he lists every reason why they were Gentiles. By definition, they were Gentiles because they were without Christ, they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel, they were foreigners to the covenants of promise, they were without hope, and they were without God. All of those things that were true of the Ephesian Gentiles is what made them Gentiles. They were separate from God and his promises. They were apart from Jesus. And what Paul says is because of these things, they were far from God. You see, the Gentiles in their past, they were far from God. They didn't have anything natural to their society that would point them to the God of the Bible and would point them to Jesus. These are by nature the very characteristics of a Gentile. But Paul says that's who you were. That is in your past. That is not who you are. In verse 13, he now reminds them of who they are. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near. So in other words, you were far away, but now you have been brought near. Not because of what you did, but Jesus brought you near to the Father by his blood. He says, for he is our peace, who Jesus is our peace, who made both groups, what groups? Jew and Gentile. He made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross by which he put to the hostility to death. He, Jesus, came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, the Gentile, and peace to those who were near, the Jew, for through him we both... Jew and Gentile have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, by nature and naturally in a city like Ephesus, there was every reason to be divided. And Paul says, because of your past, you have every reason to be divided. Some of you were far from God, Gentiles. Some of you were near to God because you had the Old Testament, you had the law and the prophets, and you were near to God. But the reality is you were both separated from God. And it's the same Jesus who saved both those who were far and those who were near. It's the same Jesus who gives the same spirit that now unites you and makes you one. He makes one from the two. And it's through Jesus that both of these realities occur. The reality for the Gentile who was apart from God is now brought near to God because of Jesus. The Jew who was already near to God and yet still separate from God, Jesus has made the law ineffective so that the law is no longer a dividing line between Jew and Gentile. The Gentile has been brought near by Jesus. The Gentile has received peace through Jesus. The Jew has received peace through Jesus. The law, while useful, has been made ineffective through Jesus. And so Paul reminds them, 
while you have every reason to be divided, it's the same Jesus who gives access to the Father through the same Spirit. So whether you were born Gentile in a pagan city and worshiping pagan gods and Roman gods and all of those things, if that's true of you, that's not who you are now because of Jesus. And if you were a Jew and you grew up going to the temple or following the Ten Commandments, you had the law, you worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you were brought near to the Father. You were made right with the Father through Jesus. So Jesus is the one who unites both Jew and Gentile. And that's the point that Paul gets across. So he talks about their past, the things that divided them, the things that separated them. He now talks about their present, that through Jesus, this is no longer true of you, but then he discusses a new reality. Look in verse 19. So then, because of who you were, because Jesus brought you to the Father, whether you were Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter, it was all through Jesus. So then, you, y'all, Jew and Gentile, are no longer foreigners and strangers. You no longer have disassociation with each other. You're no longer foreign to each other. But now, instead, the reality is you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household. You see what Paul says is you once were separate. You once were foreign to each other because of the things that naturally divided you. But now you are one and you are neither Jew nor Gentile, but instead you are God's household. Not his house, a physical dwelling where God would go and they would meet him there. He says, you as a people who have been redeemed by Jesus, you as those people are no longer identified as Jew or Gentile. You are identified as God's household. Point blank, period, end of story. And that is the only thing that matters and that's the only thing that draws us together rather than removes us or draws us apart. He says, verse 20, you... Jews and Gentiles in Christ, right? You're no longer bound by those categories and those labels and those terms. Instead, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, in Christ, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also... Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, because of Jesus. Now you together as one household, as one people, are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. You see, Paul uses a picture here of building a building. And what he says is in those days, you know, you would build a building mostly out of stone or whatever materials you would use, but, but you would use the materials, and here's what Paul says. The materials are now all the same. All the materials have been washed by the blood of Jesus. All the materials have been brought to the Father by Jesus. So now, God, the master builder, is building a building for his dwelling. That building is not a physical building like a temple. That building is a household made up of the redeemed. And it doesn't matter where you came from or how you got there. It's all through Jesus. And so the picture is this. God's the master builder. And Jesus is the cornerstone that sets everything else in place, sets everything else in place its proper place, its proper order, but here's what the master builder does. God, the master builder, who's building this with the big picture in mind, he takes one stone and he says, this fits perfectly right here. And he takes another stone and he puts it next to it and says, this fits perfectly right here. And he does not consider whether each of those stones was from a Jewish or a Gentile background. 
He just simply says, now you are a stone being used in the building according to the master builder's plan. And so he grabs the stone that fits and he does not consider how it got there or where it came from. And that's the picture Paul wants to leave with the church in Ephesus. He says, because of Jesus, you are now one new entity. And you are now belonging to the household of God. It's no longer about whether you were Jewish or Gentile. It's about now you are a follower of Jesus and God puts you together according to how he sees fit. And so for you guys who live in Ephesus in this metropolitan area with all these divisive things around you, now I want you to see that that's not what separates us now that Jesus unites us. John MacArthur says this, he says, you are God's house, household. This union that we have with Christ and consequently now with each other forms the sanctuary where God lives. Again, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the collective people of God in whom the Spirit of God lives, in whom Christ lives, and in whom the Father has set up his home. This is the church. It's the house of God. And so now the church is how we're identified. We no longer identify based on the categories of what we were born into, pagan, Gentile, Jew. No, now what we identify is we are the church because of Jesus. So what does this mean for us living in 2023 in an American society? Well, I think what's true of us is that we still have many things that seek to divide us. There are many things in our society, again, macro or micro, that can divide us. And what happens is so often those things that outwardly divide us according to our society so easily are creeping into the church. Think about some issues that we see on a national level. We have the political issues of Democrats, Republicans. We have the issues of race and ethnicity. We have those who are local and those who are foreigners. We have the divide between the rich and the poor. We have these distinctions between white collar and blue collar. All of these categorical differences that if, if left unchecked can bleed into the church, can find their way into the fabric of the church, resulting in churches who are now divided. And so what we have to be reminded of is that's not who we are. That may be who we are on a census. That may be who we are according to the government and paperwork, but according to Jesus, we are one entity, the church, made up of one people. We are not bound or identified by who we are outside or who we were born as. We are bound together because we belong to Jesus. And because of that, he is building his church. And that's who we are. You see, again, John MacArthur says this. He says, the cross is God's answer to racial discrimination. It's God's answer to segregation. It's God's answer to apartheid. It's God's answer to war. It's God's answer to anti-Semitism, hyper-nationalism, bigotry, and every form of strife. The point is this. In the world, all of those things he mentions divide us, but yet Jesus unites us. And so in Jesus, we are able to lay all of those things aside because now we identify as I belong to Jesus. I am part of his church. I want to close with a story that I think uh, maybe allows us to visualize exactly what this looks like. This idea that we lay aside the divisions because Jesus now unites us and makes us into his church. We belong to a whole other category 
You may have heard of the movie or even the book called End of the Spear. It was written by Steve Saint, the son of a murdered, martyred, maybe missionary to the Aka Indians in the Amazonian parts of Ecuador. And in this story, Steve Saint tells, he tells the story of finding out about how his father and some of his friends who were missionaries were killed on the banks of a river in Ecuador. And what's interesting is as the story progresses, we realize that Steve Saint becomes friends with the man who murdered his father. And I think the, the power of this story, but then the, the head-scratching moment is we think, how is this possible? How can a man become friends with the other man who killed his father? They have every reason to be divided. They have every reason to, to be completely separated. And in fact, they have every reason to hate one another. And yet the story tells of how this is possible because Steve Saint, as he tells the story, is that God comes and he saves the man who killed his father. And in fact, the gospel comes into this once unreached people group, this once foreign tribe who hated outsiders, and the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into that tribe, and it changes the very fabric of that tribe so that when Steve Saint comes and he ministers to these people and he meets these people, now the thing that divided them is not true because the thing that unites them is they both know Jesus, and Jesus has made both of them a part of his church. What's interesting, though, is the book has the subtitle. I want to read the subtitle because I think it does well to summarize all that Paul has said and all the challenges that we face in the church today. The subtitle of the book, End of the Spear, reads this way. It says, When two worlds collide, one family faces its ultimate challenge. And man, I, I can't think of a better way to summarize who the church is in this regard than in that way. When two worlds collide, two worlds that give every reason to be divided, when they collide, or maybe when Jesus brings them together through his blood on the cross, through the spirit that now unites us and gives us access to the Father, when two worlds collide, now we are one family. We are the household of God. And so when those two worlds collide through Jesus, now we are one family and now we face our ultimate challenge. We can either be divided because of who we were, or we can be united by the power of the Spirit who lives in the life of every believer and draws us together so that God, the master builder, can build us, his church, into a dwelling place for his presence and his Spirit. And so I hope this series has been helpful. I hope today's message has been helpful. And I hope that you will consider... How is it that you can lay aside the very things that would seek to divide and that we can work together because of who we are in Christ and now we identify that we belong to the church. So when I look at my fellow brother, my fellow sister, I don't see them according to how the world sees them or where they came from or what tax bracket they're in. I see them as my brother and my sister and I love them and we strive together because we belong to God's church and he's using his church in the world for his glory. I hope this is helpful for you. I'm going to pray for us as we end this series. God, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for this reminder. I thank you for this picture. Lord, I pray that for your church in our world, that we would be united because that is who we are by nature in Christ. 
that Jesus brings together everything that would, that would seek to divide and to destroy and to separate, but he is the one who unites us because he is the one who gives us access to the Father. And so God, I pray that we would live out this reality, that we would be the church who is united, and as we are united, the world around us sees the very fabric of the church and says, man, that's different, and I want to be a part of that. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus who makes all of this possible, and we ask this in his name. Amen.